I had to do a double take when I saw the news, and we'll take a closer look here in a second. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, where we continue to follow this fascinating narrative of natural resources and how they continue to shape, you know, policy of governments around the world, both locally and abroad, whether it's tech resources or Chinese rare earth processing facilities or Indonesian nickel, or the latest, the nationalization, so-called, although it seems like a very, very, very light nationalization in Chile of lithium companies, and we'll go deeper into that in the news section. But all to say, the drama continues here. And turning to Tech and Glencore, which are front and center both locally and, you could argue, in the international mining news, check this out. So in the same story by Reuters, Just to give you some context, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade wrote a letter to Christia Freeland with concerns about tech's future in Canada. And what Christia Freeland said was, quote, we need companies like tech here in Canada, companies with a strong commitment to Canada. And we'll get to the real meat and potatoes in a second here, but just a little bit more context. And then after Freeland's comment, Glencore pointed out to its April 3rd letter where it has said its deal, quote, would not materially change the day-to-day operations at tech's assets in Canada. And then it said it will honor all of tech's commitments to local Canadian communities, as well as to Indigenous communities, to ensure their interests are acknowledged and protected. I mean, these days, I think that goes without saying, because I think what the Vancouver board was pointing out was actually the office jobs at tech headquarters I think everybody more than assumes that the Indigenous community's interests will be acknowledged and protected. Uh, One would think that goes without saying. It almost brings up a red flag of sorts, you know, Glencore even mentioning that, but perhaps not. So they have reasserted that. So the voting has begun. I am on Tuesday here uh, as I record this. So to give you a little bit of a a sense of the timing here, tech's institutional shareholders were due to vote by 3 p.m. Eastern on Monday on a tech proposal to split its coal and metal businesses with results released on Wednesday. So we're right in between those two days here. Glencore has said that there is no deal if shareholders vote in favor of tech's split. They have also said that they'll see it as a win if they vote isn't in favor of the split. This is what blew my mind, though. My long preamble here. Canada's largest pension fund, CPPI, voted against the split over the weekend. So first they voted basically in favor of Glencore, then changed its vote to favor the move according to its website. I did some research and I was like, isn't the Canadian pension plan like a crown corporation? And it is. CPP investments. So For all we know, that was some call that came from higher up in the government saying, if you guys are voting this way, that's not cool, right? I mean, that's probably what happened. They voted against the split over the weekend. In other words, in favor of Glencore and then changed it. So someone must have seen that, right? So anyways, pretty interesting development there. Apparently it's neck and neck. And interestingly as well, China Investment Corporation, the largest holder of tech's common stock, has not disclosed how it voted. Large investors such as Norwegian government pension fund asset manager Janus Handerson and Letgo Brasso and tech mining partner Sumitomo Metals have said that they will vote in favor of the split as well. So that would be in Norm Kievel and Tech Brass's favor. 
Proxy advisory firms Glass-Lewis and ISS have recommended shareholders oppose dividing tech, and Toronto-based Warada Capitals has said it voted against the move. So we're going to find out pretty quickly how this vote goes. I mean, my whole impression on this is the government, as well as tech brass, would love to see this vote go through, this split, because in a sense, it sounds like that would fend off Glencore, who has said that they will not support this deal if tech is split up. So I think rather than coming out and saying we will veto this, whether it's, you know, again, upper tech management or the government of Canada, I think they want to see how the vote goes first because it probably be a lot smoother ride for everybody. One less headache if this just resolves itself from a market perspective. So anyways, the drama continues over here. One senses that there's going to be the resolution, at least of the Glencore move, within hours. And we're going to know which direction this is going to go by tomorrow on Wednesday. So maybe by the time you're listening to this, you can actually do a quick search here on your Google and see what the outcome of this vote was. So very interesting. Coming up this show, I'm very pleased to welcome back Rohan Reddy, Director of Research at Global X ETFs. And Rohan has a very deep knowledge of the commodities markets, particularly metals and oil. So I ask him about oil. I mean, it's a very untypical in its moderation view. I mean, his macro is actually fairly positive for the second half of the year. Again, he says it's a late stage cycle suggesting that commodities could do well, but you'll see many financial commentators suggest that we could be heading for a real disaster in the second half. That is not Rohan Reddy's view. Perhaps a refreshingly positive perspective here from Rohan Reddy. And also, I get his reflections on oil, which again, I'm hearing all sorts of concern and consternation about how there's going to be a serious deficit here by the second half, later in the year, maybe early next year, in oil. Rohan does not see it that way. So some very interesting insights, as well as on uranium, lithium, which has been very interesting, and a little bit on copper. So a very interesting interview with Rohan ready coming up. Other than that, I mean, earnings are starting. Alcoa came in and they basically went down 10% last week to from $41 to about 37 So they were warning also that Russian aluminum will overwhelm LME warehouses. So they're back to warning about Russian aluminum over there. So we will follow earnings season here and check out what all the miners are doing. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. Wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, Tech Scrambles to Secure Split Vote with Outcome Uncertain. And this is Niall McGee of the Globe and Mail courtesy of mining.com. And it says here, and it's a little bit of a complicated paragraph, but I'll read it for you. Tech resources split vote hangs in the balance with the outcome too close to call, its biggest shareholder missing in action and back office problems causing frustration behind the scenes, a source familiar with the vote said. So in other words, someone who is on the inside said that the outcome is too close to call and that its biggest shareholder is missing in action and back office problems are causing frustration behind the scenes. 
I mean, it sounds like it's a moot point to a certain degree if the board is not on side with the Glencore deal. In other words, as Norm Keevil has said in the past, whatever's good with the board is good with me. But it sounds like the least controversial thing to happen from tech's perspective is if this split goes through, because that will be seen as a repudiation of the Glencore proposal. Back to our story here. Shareholders at Vancouver-based Tech on Wednesday will meet on the company's proposal to split itself into Tech Metals and Elk Valley Resources, which would hold its metallurgical coal assets. Glencore, which has a hostile takeover on the table for Tech, is hoping that Tech shareholders will vote against the split and in turn force the board to engage with the company. At least two-thirds of votes cast by shareholders must be in favor for the separation to be approved. So... Not half, but two-thirds of the votes have to favor the separation, which is what Tech wants. While the result of the vote is scheduled to be made public on Wednesday, Tech will already have a good idea of where it stands as most shareholders vote ahead of the meeting, and at this point the source said that the vote is too close to call. The Globe and Mail is not identifying the source because discussions are private and the person was not authorized to speak publicly. After noon today, and this was Monday, and today is Tuesday, so yesterday, which is the proxy voting deadline, votes cast by shareholders won't be guaranteed to factor into the outcome. With only hours to go before the deadline, China Investment Corporation's vote has not yet come in, and tech's advisors are baffled as to the reason why, the source said. Well, if it's neck and neck and too close to call and China Investment Corporation was for the Glencore deal, in other words, not for the split... It sounds like this thing could go Glencore's way, at least the way Glencore was trying to frame it. Because remember, Glencore was out there saying that if this split fails, that's a win for Glencore. Whereas Tech was saying this has nothing to do with Glencore the way this vote goes. So you see how much power controlling the narrative has. Now, continuing with China Investment Corporation, CIC was Tech's biggest shareholder as of its last public disclosure on March 23rd, with a 10.3% stake in Tech's B shares, CIC has outsized influence on the outcome of the vote. Now, again, Norm Keeble has A shares, and B shares are something like, I think, 10% of the power of an A share. Now, continuing on, investors that own stock on the record date of March 7th are eligible to vote in the meeting. If China Investment Corporation sold its shares after the record date, it would not have any skin in the game anymore. China Investment Corporation and Tech did not respond to a request for comment for this story. One scenario that appears a possibility is that China Investment Corporation's vote does not make it to the proxy deadline. At that point, whether to accept CIC's vote or not will be at the discretion of Tech's chair, Sheila Murray. If the final numbers after the proxy deadline show that Tech has secured enough votes to move forward on the split, it likely won't accept any more votes from CIC or anybody else. But Tech will have to wait until well past the deadline before it gets an accurate reading on where it stands. The source said that Tech is dealing with several administrative challenges that are causing the scorecard to be skewed. Some investors are, quote, overvoting their holdings, owing to voting shares that were acquired after the record date, the source said. In addition, there is a significant lag on the scorecard in instances where investors have flipped their votes, the sources said. Shareholders are allowed to change their vote as long as it is logged ahead of the proxy deadline. 
So a little messy over there with the tech vote. Sounds like that could have a controversial outcome, the way things are setting up there. Now, the government of Canada has weighed in. Uh, Finance Minister Christina Freeland has said that tech resources should remain in Canada. And this is Reuters via mining.com. And we were commenting on this pretty heavily last episode. What is the government going to do? Are they simply going to let this pass through? Well, it sounds to me like a lot of the, maybe the government, maybe the board and Norm Keevil are hoping that this just gets, the split gets voted through because then they don't need to do any kind of heavy lifting as far as vetoing the deal, whether it's tech brass or the government of Canada. Now, let's read the story here. Tech Resources, which is trying to fend off an unsolicited $22.5 billion takeover offer from Glencore, should remain headquartered in Canada and help the country expand its critical minerals industry, Finance Minister Christia Freeland said on Monday. Shortly after last episode, Robert Friedland came out in defense of tech, and this is Cecilia Jamasmi at Mining.com. Friedland, founder and executive chairman of Ivanhoe Mines, warned late on Monday through a series of tweets that investors should not take lightly the attempted takeover of a Canadian champion. Quote, losing another quintessential Canadian support mechanism to multinationals could corporatize and hollow out our unique ecosystem that has so successfully explored our vast landmass. Just a couple more from Friedland here. He said he had, quote, great respect for Glencore but noted the company and tech had, quote, vastly different cultures when it comes to exploration, mine development, and mining operations. Well, master of understatement there. He urged the Canadian government and regulators to protect tech from, quote, foreign predators, end quote, and to ensure the strategic resources, particularly copper and zinc, remain in local hands. So that is pretty much exactly what we were saying last episode here. And so Robert Friedland is not a fan of this. Germany draws up to $2 billion state fund to secure key commodities. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. The German government plans to set up a state fund worth up to $2 billion that will support mining of raw materials critical to the nation's green transition with the aim of securing access and cutting reliance on China. The new financing vehicle could start next year if the ruling coalition agrees on the funding according to people familiar with the matter, and will be equipped with funds between 1 billion and 2 billion euros. The pivotal role of raw materials such as cobalt, copper, lithium, silicon, and rare earth metals in producing everything from wind turbines to electric vehicle batteries is driving efforts to guarantee supplies across the globe. Germany relies on imports of over 90% of crucial commodities, according to research by think tank DIW Berlin, with China leading the way in supplying many important inputs. Now, another huge story on the mining stage is Chile. Now, we have a headline here, Chile to nationalize its lithium industry. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi at mining.com. Now, as Rohan Reddy points out in our interview, it's sort of seen as nationalization light. I mean, great, awesomely, Cecilia linked to the YouTube channel. So I actually watched the video with translations. It sounds like they want a stake And they kind of want to oversee what goes on with the lithium industry in Chile. Now, it's not a full-on nationalization in the sense that I think they are just trying, maybe they take to speculate maybe something like 50% stake in these companies and oversee what's going on and really take a really up-close and personal 
role in the lithium industry, which they currently don't have. Very quickly on the story here, Chile's president, Gabriel Boric, announced on Thursday night his government would nationalize the country's lithium industry, applying a model in which the state will partner with companies to enable local development. So partnering with companies, the long-awaited policy in the world's second largest producer of the battery metal includes the creation of a national lithium company, Boric said on national television. It was like a speech to the nation, interestingly, and he compared it in that speech to Cadelco in the 70s being basically nationalized and how that ultimately benefited Chile. So a quote from Boric this is an opportunity for economic growth that will be difficult to beat in the short term. We cannot afford to waste it. So what really struck me as I watched that video was the sense that they were taking a page out of Indonesia's playbook because he mentioned there were five points that he had mentioned. And the last point really stuck out, which is he wanted the generation of lithium products with added value in Chile. And isn't that exactly like Indonesia saying, we're not just going to send you our raw materials where you make all the money when you make the batteries. We want you to make the batteries here. And so maybe getting a controlling stake is really just making sure that things really are going, that they have full control over what happens here. It sounds like they're not kicking out, you know, the private companies, but they want a kind of a final say and not just in theory, but in practice. And Boric said he hoped that lithium miners already present in Chile would be open to negotiate state participation before the end of their contracts. So this doesn't sound, again, it's, it sounds like he wants the private sector to stay, but we're basically, we're going to determine ultimately what happens with this lithium. So resource nationalism continues here. And continuing on, SQM, which is a major lithium miner in Chile, weighs hard choices in Chile after $3.7 billion share wipeout. So they their shares, I think, went down 20% on this announcement. And we have, scrolling down the article here, Joe Lowry, an industry consultant, quote, I would look for SQM to strike an agreement fairly quickly. Yeah, so a lot of uncertainty right now with the lithium miners in Chile because really they have to negotiate an agreement with the government now. Now, this could speed up permitting processes. I don't know how fast it is in Chile, but it was quite a good speech, I have to say. It did not seem extreme, uh, as one would expect, even though one could argue the policy leans towards that. Uh, when you hear it said, it sounded fairly practical. And one of the things that he mentioned that was a priority is for the communities surrounding these developments that they benefit and that they are taken care of. So this could actually speed up the process in theory, but they have to be careful with this because I think, I'm not sure if it was Zambia that tried to do this and then they started running into problems. They also wanted, you know, the downstream, the supply chain to be developed, you know, batteries to, to be developed in Zambia if memory serves. And that didn't help them because all of a sudden lithium crashed and they kind of had not much negotiating power. And so now you have people within the, you know, lithium association, so to speak, is now asking for them to open things up because now they're suffering the local lithium industry. So it's kind of interesting. And here Argentina says new projects will boost lithium production fivefold by 2025. So that is the Northern Miner as by a staff writer at the Northern Miner. So very interesting moves across the board here. And finally, just a headline here, Zimbabwe to introduce gold-backed digital currency, 
And this is Bloomberg News via mining.com. And it sounds like they're going to put out a digital currency and that they're going to back it with gold because they have a major inflation problem because everybody wants to use the dollar. So just another kind of interesting currency story to add to the list of what is loosely called de-dollarization. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond, and it is yielding 3.447%. That is 0.13% lower than last week and about where it was two weeks ago and three weeks ago. Turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $1,979.23 per ounce. That is $24 lower than last week and back below $2,000. Silver is trading at $24.54 per ounce. That is 69 cents lower than last week. And platinum is trading at $1,065.93 per ounce. That is $7 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,492.64 per ounce. That is $111 lower than last week. So it kind of climbed back up to $1,600, but now it is back down with a 14 handle. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is below $4 at $3.84 per pound. So that is $0.24 cents lower than last week. Iron ore is also lower at $109.50 per ton. That is $9 lower than last week. Aluminum is unchanged at $1.08 per pound. Lead is also unchanged at $1 per pound. Nickel is higher at $11.07 per pound. That is $0.17 higher than last week. And tin is also higher at $12.06 per pound. That is $0.79 higher than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.84 per pound. Lithium continues to drop at $25.03 per kilogram. That is $3 lower than last week. And again, a quick reminder, seven weeks ago, we were more than double when we started covering lithium at $51.54 per kilogram. So it is now at $25.03 lower. So down 10% from last week, more. Uranium is unchanged at $51 per pound, and zinc is $0.08 lower at $1.21 per pound. Zooming out, almost all metals are down with the exception of aluminum and lead, which are even, and the real standouts are nickel and tin, which are higher. So that is interesting. So it seems to point to a little bit of concern in the market, a little bit of risk off. But then perhaps with nickel and tin, you just have individual markets that are perhaps a little tighter, despite the macro are still increasing in price. All speculation over here, and those are your metal prices. And coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome back Rohan Reddy, Director of Research at Global X ETFs. And what's so amazing about Rohan Reddy is his range of knowledge being director of research at Global X. And so 
It's always fun to just hear what he has to say on individual markets. And here we focus on oil, where he has extensive knowledge, uranium, lithium, and a little bit of copper, as well as opening the segment with his thoughts on the macro, which is not typical at all. So it's a fascinating conversation from someone with deep knowledge on the markets. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I'm very pleased to welcome back Rohan Reddy, Director of Research at Global X ETFs to the Northern Miner Podcast. Rohan, it's been a while. Welcome back. Thanks a lot. Great to be here, Adrian. Well, I'm really excited and glad that you're coming back to help share your knowledge on the markets, and it is extensive. So for openers, how are you seeing things just from a very big picture here? I mean, we've had a big run-up in stocks. Commodities seem to have the wind in their sails. Precious metals are up, oil, you know, just stepping back, what is your big picture view of what is happening out there? Yeah, I think it's clear that when you look at a lot of the price action and commodity markets and even just general financial markets, it's clear that there's late cycle dynamics at play over here. And I think that is somewhat interesting to setting up the entire commodities picture, because usually in those environments, commodity prices tend to be elevated. And so I think for investors looking for opportunities in these markets, we do see that commodities in particular look a little bit more attractive than maybe they would at other parts of the cycle. So a lot of times people are asking us, how do we time out these markets? Which types of commodities are best positioned? There's actually a few different options, which I think makes it a really exciting time to be in commodities because when you look at the traditional, say, 60-40 portfolio of equities and fixed income, last year was a very challenging year for that kind of a portfolio because interest rates were moving up. That was adversely affecting equities and fixed income. So people were looking for different avenues to try to uh, play the dynamics in the market. And I think commodities were one of those few areas that people are saying, well, could be a nice time to get back in if you haven't been in already. And for those who are maybe under allocated, increasing some exposure there. That's interesting. Yeah, I was talking to Jeffrey Christian maybe a few weeks ago, and he kind of had a similar sentiment that he expressed, which was money managers were looking at their portfolios and looking at 2022, and they saw how gold had actually not done badly so they thought at the start of the year, maybe it's time to increase the allocation because that was one of the few things last year that had not done badly. I don't know if you have any views on, and we're going to get more into the oil and uranium, but any just sense of inflation, China, do you have any thoughts that you'd like to add on that side of things? Yeah, and I think the macro is proven to be quite an important point in what's happening with generalized commodities. So if you look at inflation, if the Fed is looking at the job that they've done and saying, okay, well, are we achieving our objectives? You could really argue the answer is yes, because inflation was very high previously. It peaked at around 9% in the US, very high even in Europe as well, which was a, a big move away from what we have seen previously. And then central banks were looking to basically really change that narrative and make sure that inflation was not a big issue in the economy. So I would actually argue that even though, yes, last year was a very challenging year because of how quickly rates had moved up and we were coming off a very low base post-COVID, it was necessary in making sure that consumers were not massively adversely affected. So I think the inflation story is starting to become a little bit more positive. We do see that if you look at the futures markets for rates, 
it doesn't look like rates are expected to move up a ton here, which I think is a positive and sort of base setting what we see as our outlook, which is a much more calm, lower volatility environment. And you're kind of seeing that in like, you know, equity indexes like the, the VIX, for example, are starting to taper down and where their levels are. So China, for example, I think another positive story that we saw there was the inflation, uh, the surprise, I think, that we've been seeing with the GDP, for example. So uh, GDP came in at four and a half percent growth, which was more positive than what we had seen, especially when things were closed down in China. And that was a big issue in the second half of last year. And that had a huge effect on uh, broader markets. But I would say in particular, commodities markets, because China is the world's second largest economy, has a very big impact uh, in the entire commodities complex. So the fact that we saw Q1 come in more positive, that I think is proving to be another positive to the story here about what we could see for the second half of the year uh, after what we've seen so far in Q1. So I think that's another uh, upshoot. And then I think to your point about gold and you know what we're seeing generally within investor sentiment and the markets, it's not surprising to me that gold has started to shoot up a little bit and reaching these almost like record-like levels going above uh, 2,000 an ounce, for example. That, I think, was in line with what we had been seeing with this risk-off environment, where investors were moving away from riskier assets into things that were more protective in nature, or those that were seen as safe haven. So you know, dollar, for example, gold, uh, even things that could pass through interest rates going up. I think those were all assets that were getting more uh, interest. So gold for a while had been uh, sitting out a lot of the commodities rally. And I think now it's starting to get a little bit of the luster back. It kind of goes at its own speed, doesn't it? Like it doesn't follow anybody. That's, that's so funny. So it just sounds to me before we kind of get a bit more specific into, say, oil and whatnot, it sounds like to me you don't have the view that we're going to fall off a cliff in the second half that kind of many people out there have that it's like, you know, the first half is kind of the calm before the storm. Is that correct? Yeah, in fact, we would actually have the opposite narrative and the opposite viewpoint to that whole. So maybe it's a little bit contrarian, uh, but I think a lot of it has to do with what we saw last year, where things were really selling off at like a big rapid pace. And obviously, that was very challenging for investors. But the thing is, if you start to look at what we're seeing with the macroeconomic environment, things are starting to normalize and I think becoming less of a headwind, whereas last year, that was where we saw a major headwind in macroeconomic and the fiscal like outlook and also monetary outlook, obviously. So with the monetary policy, uh, I think the issues to start this year was whether, for example, the Fed's terminal rate was going to go up from 5% and move up to, say, 6%. That would have been, I think, a headwind. Things have seemed to taper off because uh, with that expectation because of uh, inflation starting to move down. So connecting it back to the inflation story, I think the fact that the Fed is starting to pull in and rein in inflationary pressures, I mean, still definitely high, right, like 5% in the U.S. and elevated in other parts of Europe. But we are starting to see that because inflation is moving down, we don't necessarily see that rising rates is going to be a major headwind. Certainly, the curve being inverted is a little bit of a challenge right now. But I think uh, our view is that in the second half of the year, if you see rates stay steady and then you start to see, for example, consumer sentiment improve, labor numbers are generally pretty strong. 
And I think if you start to see maybe the dollar taper off, there could be additional demand from foreign countries. So we actually see a scenario where there could be a little bit of a rally uh, in the second half of the year. We've already seen positive market moves, uh, particularly in the equity markets to start the year, which I think was somewhat unexpected. Part of it was because a lot of the pain was built into last year and was uh, factored into market expectations last year. But we're also starting to see, I think, uh, if you look at like growth assets, those have been the ones that are really outperformed the most, like tech and all of those. So you you might see a shifting in that. Maybe value starts to come back more in the second half of the year. But I do think generally across riskier assets, including commodities, we do have a positive and constructive viewpoint for the second half of the year. Okay, excellent. So this brings me then to the big question of oil, because if China is kind of doing better than expected and the economy might do better than expected, well, what if oil is higher than expected? How can inflation stay down is sort of my question that I ask myself here. But maybe do you want to talk about the oil markets and what you see? I mean, I see all sorts of stuff about how, you know, there's going to be a real deficit in supply by the end of the year. But I don't know. You know a lot about the oil market. What's your take? Yeah, it's a good question because I think it's been a very interesting market and in some ways a little bit of a proxy for sentiment and expectations because of how volatile some of the moves are. If you back up a little bit to last year when we saw oil prices like peak out around $120 a barrel, and a lot of that was due to some of the China reopening story that obviously shifted quite significantly in the second half of the year. But We've seen prices stay elevated. I think the question we've been getting from investors is, are we going to go back to that you know, post-COVID initial period where oil prices were very low and very difficult for some of the producers to make money? And even in prior years when oil prices were generally more on the depressed side, we don't see that because if you look at forward-looking expectations and going back to your point, Adrian, about whether there's going to be like a deficit or anything like that, OPEC has really not rushed to raise production, and I think it has been somewhat surprising. Part of it is the lessons learned in their initial you know, post-2014 period when they were really racing for market share and trying to control parts of the market. That proved to be uh, not a positive strategy and one that hurt a lot of the uh, member states within OPEC. So that's been part of it. The second thing has also been in light of the Russia-Ukraine war, where Russia makes up pre-COVID, it made up around 10% of all global oil production. That has been a huge part of the market that has essentially been moved off, right? I mean, maybe you might have some selective countries without sanctions buying uh, Russian oil at discounted prices, but that's a huge supplier in the market that's moved away. So when you take all these things into account, it is somewhat surprising that production expectations are not rising a ton. I think some of it is just investor preferences, especially for public companies, there's a move away from increasing CapEx, which I think has been a, a story for the better part of the last few years, and more towards things like a return of capital, buybacks, dividend payments, things like that. So some of it is being dictated by just corporate policies. But even in the US, and you see, uh, I think we're getting this question a lot from investors about, isn't this a huge opportunity for US companies to step in to fill the void because they're not part of OPEC? They have not really been rushing to raise production either. And the outlook doesn't, I mean, there's going to be a little bit, maybe a little bit of oil production growth, but not really enough to keep pace with uh, the demand that's expected. And so I think in terms of what that means for prices, 
we do envision that prices are going to be elevated. So in this $80 plus uh, level for the extended foreseeable future. Okay. Yeah. And that's where I was going to go with that is what are you seeing long term? Like in, as far as the decades concerned, let's say, I imagine you project out somewhat to the end of the decade. Let's say, what are you seeing for oil there? We don't think that oil prices are going to be higher necessarily for like 10 years plus there's going to be a natural eventual like phase out in 10 years is enough to be an entire market cycle in and of itself the other thing is there's a lot of reserves in other parts of the world so generally it basically and and usually 10 years is enough where you can kind of like look towards an economic model for what break-even prices are most of the world even though break-even prices have been slowly moving down even for other parts of the world outside of more developed countries like the us most parts of the world need like 55 60 a barrel to really you know break even we think like you know 60 plus is maybe a good like long-term outlook for oil prices because that's right around the level where you would incentivize production maybe to come back but not enough where it would necessarily flood the market and drive prices down there's certainly going to be peaks and troughs, right? We've seen oil prices go all the way to triple digits, as we've even seen last year, all the way to at some points in uh, the previous cycle down to like, you know, in, in one day's case, negative prices, which was a little bit of an outlier, but also even to $20, $30 oil prices. So there's there's going to be peaks and troughs, but we think that maybe around $55, $60 long term is uh, not a bad baseline average. Okay, excellent. So you're not concerned about a severe deficit coming in the coming years where we're going to see $200 oil and this sort of thing, maybe temporarily, but generally speaking, it doesn't sound like doom and gloom on the oil front from your perspective. No, and part of that is, yes, I mean, I think th there is enough reserves to be able to bring some of this production actually to market. And there's a lot of reserves in the US as well, which is outside of OPEC's purview. But at the same time, I mean, a lot of Middle Eastern countries still derive a lot of their fiscal revenue from uh, sources like oil and other commodities. So it still is a big part of the mix. There's going to be a production that's going to come to market. And at the end of the day, as we've learned, economics does dictate policy quite a bit. So even though there might be short-term changes within that, there is ultimately an economic rationale that comes to bringing oil to market. The other thing is, it's not like you're going to see this massive demand growth for some of the reasons that you know we discuss around changing policy with climate change, moves towards other sources of energy like gas, nuclear, all of that. So there's going to be more of a balanced energy mix. And yes, there could be peak oil could be hit sooner rather than later. But I don't think it's it's enough of a point where you know you would hit $200 oil prices because at the end of the day, what would happen then is there would be demand destruction, both from the consumer side and outside of that, where it would just be too expensive to be able to incentivize further demand. What I do think is interesting, um, just looking out more towards the next even like few years, in light of the Russia-Ukraine war, which I think was very eye-opening to both Europe, which was more directly impacted by this, but even the entire world, relying exclusively on one source of energy is really a risky proposition, I think. And Europe learned this in particular, like some Western European countries, the hard way with the reliance on Russian natural gas, for example. So I do think between the climate change uh, policies and initiatives in place, uh, which are you know in place for the next three, four, five decades plus, and also the move to diversify sources of energy, 
that's going to make, I think, these peaks and troughs a little bit less frequent, which I think has been somewhat of a, a change from what we've seen in prior decades. Okay, fascinating. And that brings us, of course, to nuclear and the situation with uranium. Last I looked last week, it seemed to be at like somewhere around $51 a pound uranium. What's your characterization? What's your feel of the uranium market and where we are right now? Yeah, uranium, and we've discussed this on your show in the past, Adrian, it's been uh, one of the hottest topics in the commodity space for uh, the last few years. I think what you're seeing is there's a big story in the long term for uranium, just because it's the primary fuel input that goes into nuclear power plants. And definitely the stigma around nuclear has shifted in light of things like the Russia-Ukraine war. But even just in general, I think it's viewed now safety, technology, uh, lack of emissions during operations. These are all like things that I think have really changed people's perceptions in uh, light of maybe what we had seen uh, with prior incidents, for example, and things that were lingering in people's minds. But we do see a very strong case for uh, growth in the nuclear and the uranium space. I mean, China is probably the biggest part of that just because they've been looking to build a lot more nuclear power plants, both in terms of what's being planned on their end and those that are currently under construction. So they're going to be a huge source of demand. And I think the Asian continent continent itself between other countries like you know India, Korea, there's going to be a lot of demand coming from those countries, which at the end of the day happen to also be big population centers as well. And they use a lot of electricity. So uh, we do see that electricity demand through 2050 is expected to actually go up by a full 50%. So there's a lot of power demand that's needed. And nuclear is going to be a big part of that solution. You mentioned, you know, prices being uh, like hovering in this range bound area where they're around like $50 or so and not really moving a ton off of that. It has been somewhat interesting because I think, you you know, you do envision a market where it is going to be in deficit. And I think it's probably one of the markets that there's going to be a deficit for the next even 10 plus years if you look at a lot of the projections. But at the same time, uh, uranium prices aren't spiking. What has been a little bit of an interesting development is that in light of, for example, the Sprott uh, physical trust that came to market in July of 2021, they bought up around, you know, like 60 million pounds of uranium in that time frame. Just for context, like annual demand is around like 180 million pounds. So that's like a huge part of the market where there's been like a demand pull forward. So the reason that's important is because a lot of utilities have now been looking to recontract at a faster pace because even though, yes, Sprott is more of a spot market indicator with the, the physical trust and more of a price discovery vehicle, because as we've discussed, there really is not much of like a liquid futures market in uranium. I do think that utilities might start to look towards their planning uh, policies just in terms of like getting actual uranium for their plants and maybe start to say, well, when you look out, the next 6, 12, 24 months, the likelihood of uranium prices going up is maybe higher than it would have been in the past. So maybe we should recontract now. I think what that means in terms of uranium prices is you could start to see more uh, price action on the upswing uh, because uh, long-term prices might start to reflect a move up if utilities start to enter the market and recontract further. So I think that's the thing maybe that maybe we might see in the future that is not necessarily happening to a massive extent now but when you look out and see a lot of the projections supply demand all that it is one of the markets that you know we would envision is going to be most in deficit even relative to other commodities 
Yeah, it's so interesting, that market, in its boringness, in a sense, from a market perspective. I mean, people have been talking since like 2012 about uranium, and we have actually seen some movement in the last few years, it seems. But it's the timing is very difficult, it seems, and people have been waiting a very, very long time. So it sounds like, you know, the fundamentals look good as far as you're concerned, but the timing, well, who knows? I mean, is is that kind of your point? Yeah, and, you know, a lot of this, I think, there's different ways in other markets to play uranium between equities, derivatives, all of that. This market is a little bit different, right? I mean, you have the physical trust and Sprott, you have ETFs and you have single equity holding that maybe if you're a hedge fund, you can actually buy physical pounds. But for standard investors like you and I, really equities and ETFs are like the main way to play it. And the thing is, at the end of the day, these are leveraged to the price of uranium, especially those junior miners. Uh, so I do think like a lot of times when you see market moves, they could be exacerbated on the equity side because of just how tied they are to the actual price of uranium and just the forward-looking expectations. And a lot of times ETF flows can also have an outsized impact on the underlying equities themselves. So it is a little bit of a, a unique market. Um, I would say timing-wise, like Yes, we do actually like uranium a lot right now. So even tactically, it's one of the areas that we like. But I would say it's changing a bit where it's also becoming a bit of a long-term play. Usually a lot of commodities you like to play, you know, tactically, for example, even in some cases like copper, that's an interesting one where a lot of times it's a proxy for global demand. But there is this whole clean energy story that's moving into a uranium and even to an extent other parts of the commodity complex like copper, where there are these long-term tailwinds at play. So I would actually say for those who have like a dedicated commodity allocation in their portfolios, Uranium is not necessarily tactical these days. It could be one where you could sort of sit and buy and hold. And we do actually have a, a lot of the commodities that we cover, one of the most positive outlooks on uranium. Well, you mentioned copper there, and maybe we could just talk about that very briefly. Uh, what are you seeing in the copper market? Again, it seems, if memory serves, it seems like it's hovering around $4 a pound. And it's come up a bit, you know, in the last few months, but it's nothing to knock your socks off. What are you seeing in copper from your perspective? Yeah, I think copper has been it's we've had a lot of investors move into our copper product, which is um, the largest like co copper mining uh, product uh, in the United States. Uh, and so a lot of people are looking to play copper because of the leverage nature that a lot of the equities actually have to the underlying price of copper. And it is a very volatile commodity. I think that's something that when you go into copper, you kind of have to know because it is a proxy for global demand. There's also a saying, as China goes, so does copper. And just the volatility and policy uh, in China over the last 18 to 24 months has been something that investors have had to rationalize and think through their thesis. But we do think that between maybe the dollar starting to taper off, if that uh, does happen with Fed policy, uh, maybe not moving rates uh, much higher from here, and you start to see even a rate cut uh, in the second half of the year, dollar uh, weakness could actually be a positive for copper prices. And you're also seeing electric vehicles be a big part of the story. So electric vehicles typically use around two to two and a half X more copper than a traditional internal combustion engine vehicle. So if you start to see more electric vehicle sales occur, uh, that would actually be another long-term positive for copper. But even in the short term, it would spur that you would need a lot more uh, supply. And I think 
you know, going back to the point that we've been discussing uh, with a couple of the other commodities, there is a really uh, big story here about a potential deficit um, in the copper markets over the long term, because around 40% of all global copper production comes from Chile and Peru. So if there's issues in any of those countries around production, that could actually have an outsized material impact on copper prices. In the short term, we do think eventually that there is going to be a catch up because there was a major slowdown during COVID that now a lot of these copper companies are starting to catch up on. But it is something worth mentioning in the long term where, you know, going back to the whole tactical versus buy and hold story, that is starting to change, I think, in this market. So we do envision that in terms of maybe where copper could be from here. Yes, it's around like, you know, $4 or so. We could envision that, you know, prices in the short term move up to even like four and a half or so which is an interesting place, I, I think, for a lot of copper investors. But it's not the kind of area where there's going to be, I think, massive outsized growth like we saw you know, in the past like 12, 18 months when you were operating off a lower base point when copper prices were a little bit more depressed. So we do have a positive outlook, uh, especially you know, in light of these long-term uh, late cycle dynamics, I think, that we're seeing within the economy. But investors should be uh, muted with some of their expectations. I love your moderation. You have the moderation in the oil. You have the moderation. I love that because it's like everybody wants the drama, but you're providing us with maybe just some sober analysis. So could you talk about lithium? I mean, we've seen a lot going on with very dramatically this price drop, you know, in the last few weeks. And it seemed to go from, if my memory serves, you know, $55 down to 28 or something dollars per kilogram. What's your take on the lithium market? It's been an interesting part of the market. Uh, and as you're probably aware, we run the LIT ETF, which has become a, a bit of a barometer uh, for how investors start to look at lithium. Because again, another part of the market where it's kind of difficult to get actual you know, investment into futures and things like that, that you might get in more traditional commodities. So actually, the equities are often one of the main ways that people try and play lithium. And so there was a huge move up in, in lithium prices in prior years when prices shot up, especially on some of the China carbonate prices. And now there's been a much more sobering move down, uh, partially because of what we've seen, I think, with the slowdown in China. But even um, because lithium prices were high, there were expectations that you know if we started to see electric vehicles, like end prices for electric vehicles move upwards, that it would eventually dampen consumer demand. So I think some of those fears were permeating a little bit in the market already, and they were percolating a little bit prior to even the news that we saw uh, a few days back of the potential shift in policy that Chile has announced, uh, that they announced on Thursday around. Some are calling it a nationalization. Others are calling it like a quasi-nationalization. I guess it depends on how you uh, interpret what was said. But basically, uh, you know, if you start to see operations in Chile, for example, and you already have existing contracts, there could be some headwinds there. I think it, some of it remains to be seen on how uh, this actually is interpreted by both the companies themselves and even the government and how they actually enact the policies. But the move up in lithium prices in the past was, I think it was very sharp and very quick. And as we've seen in some commodities, both moves up and down. If they're sharp in a short period of time, it can happen again, uh, both on the up and down side. So it was not entirely surprising to see it. I will say, though, that we have probably like one of the most positive viewpoints um, of other commodities within the lithium complex, because 
there is this huge long-term uh, story about electric vehicle sales and the fact that really at the end of the day, lithium is like, you know, the main source of like the batteries, right, that are actually being used in these electric vehicles. So there is obviously, I think, a big need for it. And the technology, it's developing, um, but it hasn't developed to the point where like, you can you don't need as much lithium to like such a high extent that is needed now so there's a lot more you know growth uh, needed in the lithium production uh, area in order to be able to catch up uh with some of the uh, supply uh, and, and the demand that's needed um, for supply so i do think like electric vehicle sales is just this like secular thing that's changing there's some countries that have been very aggressive with policies like for example like phasing out internal combustion engine vehicles and some car companies specifically that have done that but i will also say a lot of car companies are trying to like get out in front of this even like traditional automakers you know they're trying to source lithium uh, supply for example like general motors i think they just did a deal with a lithium uh, production company in order to be able to maybe tighten up the supply chain so that would not be surprising to see I think uh, companies um, that are looking to get into the electric vehicle uh, production space that will look to invest in more downstream and upstream sources to be able to actually bring lithium uh, into their uh, supply chain. Okay, excellent. So final question here. When you say late cycle dynamics, it seems like you have kind of a big picture macro of how you're seeing this decade unfold a little bit. Could you just explain a little bit what you mean by late cycle? Yeah, I think it's something where, you know, a lot of times the way textbooks might uh, show where we stand in a cycle might be counter to maybe what you're actually seeing. But in this case, sometimes like what we've been seeing with the way even like historical ways that uh, economic cycles have developed, it's actually kind of happening a little bit today where you're seeing growth assets, uh, either like sentiment is uh, not quite where it was uh, in previous parts of the cycle or performance is not quite there. And you're starting to see those with higher inflationary pass-through pressures like commodities, for example. Those are the ones that are catching investors' eyes more and are actually performing in some cases better than other parts of the market. And you're starting to see equities taper off and even fixed income, you know, to the extent of interest rates moving up. And there is, you know, at the end of the day, more of a, a move towards uh, some of these treasuries and basically essentially risk-free assets that are traded by investors. And even we spoke about gold prices moving up. So there's a lot of rush towards these sort of like, you know, risk-off assets, but at the same time, also those that tactically right now are doing quite well. And I think the performance in a lot of cases of, you know, multi-asset across the entire multi-asset spectrum is really reflecting that. And you are also starting to see a little bit of that um, in the economic data show. I think what is interesting about this cycle, though, uh, and even though, yes, I would agree with that term that we are a late cycle and late cycle dynamics are starting to show. But what is interesting about this cycle is we really have not seen what the effects of a public health pandemic have done in prior cycles, right? So this is like kind of a, a bit of a new um, era for us a little bit in terms of what the actual effects could be in the rest of the economic cycle. Obviously, we saw it in the very short term post you know, March 2020, and then in the year or two years after that. But there are some lingering effects. And I think that has thrown off a little bit the spectrum of, you know, what happened with monetary policy and also economic numbers themselves, because it's very rare that you've seen like economies just simply shut off for parts of uh, a bit of time. And so I do think like the reason why we do see like in the second half more of a recovery 
than maybe we would see uh, in other cycles where you could start to see equity performance taper off, for example, is because, you know, there was uh, these lingering effects of the public health uh, pandemic that we saw uh, with COVID, but also um, interest rate policy from the Fed has been very volatile and it has shifted quite a bit. So I think that's been a little bit of a development, but I would agree with that term that we do see late cycle dynamics uh, proliferating across the economy and that we are somewhat late cycle uh, in this um, market move. Excellent. Rohan Reddy, Director of Research at Global X ETFs. Thank you for joining us once again on the Northern Miner podcast. Thanks a lot, Adrian. Another super interesting interview with Rohan, and I got to love, as I said in the interview, his moderation kind of reminds me of Jeffrey Christian a little bit. And I also enjoy the fact that he has a fairly untypical view of this market. I mean, at least when you're talking, you know, with the gold crowd, you tend to get this sense that we're heading for a catastrophe in the second half. Even Jeffrey Christian seemed to suggest that, you know, we were in the foothills of a larger crisis that could happen later this year. So anyways, very interesting perspective from Rohan on the markets. Thank you once again for joining me. And if you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.